0: All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The DealMaker Show. So today we have a pretty interesting founder. I think that uh, it's going to be mind-blowing, really, the, his story and, 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 and his journey and what he's up to uh, today with his company. But I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Eric Schiman. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about your upbringing, because you were born in Minnesota in a small town but quite early on, you knew that it was time to spring the the wings, you know, or 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 really fly somewhere else and not really stay there. So, so tell us about growing up, you know, there and and what caused you to really have that in mind of one day I'm gonna be out of here.
1: And, it, and it, you know, I grew up in a in a great town, a small town in Minnesota. A great childhood, good experiences. I just was always challenged uh, by my my parents to say, like, I can do whatever I want to do, go do it. I just always had aspirations to, to see more of that's out there. And so, um, you know, I got, I got through my high school years and, uh, you know, thought I wanted to see what the bigger world was and, and, and kind of wanted to do it on my own. So I, uh, and I had a, an interesting quest to maybe serve my country. So I applied for, I got a four-year scholarship, um, to become an army ROTC, become a commissioned officer in the United States army. And I could go anywhere I wanted and I did a bunch of uh, visits and I really liked the feel of uh, Michigan State. And so I went to, ended up leaving my town and going to Michigan State. Again, it wasn't because necessarily I hated my small town, just more, you know, I wanted to see what else was out there. And it was was a good start to what has become a a pretty interesting journey so far.
0: So there's always this phrase that is, you don't know what you don't know. So how did you know that there was something that you didn't know that was outside of Minnesota?
1: You know, I just had a gut instinct. I I obviously keep up on or I kept up on things. And, um, you know, I saw what's on TV and you see, you know, what's going on in politics or music or anything like that. And, you know, I looked around and, you know, in, in a small town, you're very sheltered and it feels really good and it's safe and it's a great place to grow up. I just felt like, you know, would I be ready? Could I do it at a different location where I'm on my own, where there isn't a support network? I wouldn't say there's any particular thing that said, well, now it's time to go do that. Maybe it's just an inner drive to challenge myself to say, you know, go do what you're doing, be successful, but do it in a huge school or in another state away from your support network. It was just always a piece of who I was.
0: And when you were in Michigan State University, you thought that, you know, your plans were around perhaps becoming a lawyer, but it seems that the officer, the senior officers, you know, had different plans for you. So what, what was that?
1: Yeah, I I went there thinking that I wanted to be a lawyer. And so between your junior and senior year as an Army ROTC cadet, again, I had a very normal college experience. I was just, I happened to be in ROTC. And in the summers, they they ship you off to different training events. Uh, that summer between my junior and senior year, I went to a training event out in Washington um, State. And while there, the senior military officers who were evaluating me thought that I would make a very good infantry officer and um, instead of a lawyer. And so in order to kind of show me what maybe they saw in me that I hadn't seen in myself yet, they shipped me out after my training to uh Korea where um this is probably 1998 or 1999 where you know it was there, there was very tension amongst the North and South Koreans. They put me on the demilitarized zone with an infantry unit where I was there, you know, living with the soldiers running an infantry unit and it really did unlock that in myself if I was going to do anything in the military, if I was going to serve my country um while there's nothing against doing it as a lawyer it just wasn't going to be a good fit for me and so i really wanted to challenge myself physically mentally emotionally and just all the leadership qualities i wanted to build you know being an infantry officer really was going to be the right answer for me so i decided to you know switch my focus in my senior year and become an infantry officer and that's what i was lucky enough to become
0: and obviously i mean that that really gave you the opportunity of of being serving in iraq serving in afghanistan so very dangerous places, very dangerous times, and obviously very uncertain times and I'm sure that for you as well as a leader, you know that has really shaped those leadership skills to to a whole nother degree, and perhaps also with being at ease to a certain degree with uncertainty because uncertainty is real when you're building and scaling a company. so how would you say that that serving in places like Iraq or Afghanistan where Death is just right there with you. You are always with death. You know how do you think that that experience the the leadership you know for you?
1: Well, it's a good question. I, I think um, when you go overseas and you deploy, you you have first and foremost the responsibility of the people that serve under you, and that's got to be the most important thing that you you care about. And it doesn't mean your job is not to put their lives at risk because unfortunately sometimes it is exactly your job to put both yourself and others' lives at risk. But it's, it's, it's to do it in ways that eliminate the obvious risk so you can only react then to the things that you don't see, to that uncertainty that you mentioned. And being in those environments, what they do, I think what they did for me, at least, um, is, is they made every decision in my life after coming out of those environments a little bit easier to analyze and reflect on and make decisions on, even with bad data, even with uncertainty. Because the consequence of every decision after those deployments um, in the business world isn't as dire and as serious as the consequence of making bad decisions on the battlefield and and those obviously being you know loss of life, uh, loss of civilians whatever whatever may happen and so you know I really took that experience of the military and those deployments overseas, and it really did shape my ability to now you know be comfortable. Um, making the big decisions with, you know, minimal data and taking that leap. Um, basically, because, you know, such an early point in your professional career, when you have to make decisions that have such dire consequences, um, the perspective you get after that is just like, well, it'll never be as bad as this. So let's try this. I, I know 15% of what I need to know, but I'm comfortable with that. And, you know, if if this next variable pivots, and um you know, I have to I have to adjust it. What's the worst that can happen? We have to adjust, we have to figure this out, we have to do this. So um it really helped shape kind of that comfort in the chaos of running and leading a, a business, right?
0: So in your case, you know, after this uh unbelievable experiences serving in the army, you came back to, to you came back home, you came back to the US, and eventually you decided to to go back to to school. And this was business school. So so why business school?
1: Good, good question. Um, I just, I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer anymore. I'd, 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 I'd figured that much out. And I didn't know exactly where in business I wanted to go, but I knew that to kind of, you know, really accelerate the leadership experience that I had had while I was in the military, I needed to, needed to like train myself in new ways. And so I wanted to dig a little bit into, you know, business, economics, statistics, finance, you know, all that stuff. I just didn't have a deep workbench of tools. I didn't think, and so that's why I went to get a business degree, not thinking I would pursue any particular, um, you know, avenue of either study or profession. Just knowing that it was broad enough that it would probably expose me to things that then would kind of I would figure it out. That was really the the decision.
0: And uh, after business, or even while while that was going on, you you kind of like got a glance for the financial sector, and. uh, what a time as well, no? So uh, it was probably like going into war as well to a certain degree because that was Lehman Brothers, and you had a first, uh, you know, line of of exposure to to what ended up unfolding, you know, in front of your eyes. So, so how was that, you know, um, experience? You know, having access and and more than anything, learning from that as well for you. Yeah,
1: that that's the key, I think, um, was learning from it. So I was not. So I I I did my first year at business school. And anyone who's got an MBA knows that your first year is really about getting your summer internship. I got pretty heavily recruited, mostly just based on my military background to, you know, all the big Wall Street banks are so pro-veteran. They're so great at making you feel comfortable. And so they recruited me in and I chose Lehman Brothers for that summer. And like I said, I think this was the summer of 2008. Um, and, you know, here I was at this big bank learning about, you know, as a, as a summer associate, the MA work, debt, equity, et cetera. I was just drinking from the fire hose. And every Monday, having a meeting where the company itself was telling all of the employees that were in the investment banking area, um, you know, here's the status of the business. Don't, don't pay attention to these headlines. We're fine. Um, it was really interesting. It was a really interesting dynamic. And of course, as a summer intern, I believed it. Went back to business school um, that fall and was sitting in class with one of my friends. And he shows me on his phone you know, the sinking price of Lehman Brothers until it eventually just went to zero, right? And that, you know, is kind of the magic moment where the financial crisis of 2008 really started. I went from having a full-time job offer to a zero job at all. Um, And it really, you know, taught me that, like, you know, transparency to employees is important with some limits, right? I think there's no way that the then leadership of Lehman Brothers could have Come out to all their employees and be like, "Look, yeah, we can't figure this out. These things are spinning out of control, and the amount of debt is not even fathomable to what we have in equity." Um, however, it it does say something about leadership when they can know that and still sit in front of employees and say things are fine. So there's a balance there, and I'm not saying that it should have been one way or the other, but it, it definitely opened up my eyes to, you know, what is the appropriate amount of things that employees need to know in order to make good decisions for your business, but also to be that good employer and to give them, you know, the trust that they deserve um, and to make sure that they have the information they need to make good decisions. And so I learned that again, very early at what happened to be a pretty big macroeconomic U.S. event. I ended up just fine. ended up getting a, a, a job, a full-time job at the end of that year with Barclays and did about two years of investment banking with them.
0: And that was the segue as well into what uh, ended up being Really, your baby today distributed the uh, solar, no? But uh, but I guess one one event that that, as they say, ideas you know they are doorman, they're back in your head. You don't know that they're there, but they take time to incubate. But I think that for you coming back from from the army, you know, you took on sailing, and I think that that was you know to a certain degree your exposure into your love for solar. So so can you tell us about and walk us through that? No, that's, that's a good point.
1: Yeah. I, when I was overseas, I was obviously very much in landlocked countries and whatnot. And so I, I wanted to te- when I came home, I just, I was like, wow, I need to learn how to sail for some reason. It felt therapeutic. And so, um, you know, enrolled with my dad in a, uh, in a sailing course in Annapolis, Maryland and got certified. And um, you know, I'm not a great skipper of boats or anything like that, but I just, I wanted to learn how to do it. And I wanted to learn from the bottoms up, like, how do you, how do you do this? How do you do that? What does this mean? All that. And what I realized was that whether it was that in particular, whether it was becoming an infantry officer in the army, to be a good infantry officer, um, you have to first learn how to dig your own foxhole. You have to learn how to clean your own weapon. You have to learn how to do these things. And what I didn't realize at the time, but as I look back on in reflection, whether it's sailing, whether it's being an infantry officer, et cetera, you you have to first, I think, know how to do what your core is in your business, in your profession, before you can then Properly, I think lead it, and I don't mean that you know there aren't people out there who can do things one thousand times better than I can do them because there are, and I need to hire those people to bring that benefit to the business. But what I mean is that you know when I first started up the solar piece of the business that we were doing at GE, I spent my my time on a local community college online course learning about solar, learning about the technical aspects of it, so I could speak the lingo, so I could understand how you know. Energy is converted into energy, or solar energy is converted into um, energy, and um, and you know I had to have that so I could speak intelligently to engineers, so I could talk about financing. The first business financial model that I had, I built. The first contract that we went out and sold, you know, I helped write. So now, you know, fast forward where we are. When I have my commercial team, or my my structured finance team, or my engineering team. They are light years ahead of that moment in my time, right? But I have a basic understanding. I have the depth and I understand how they all fit together because I've been in their shoes, not at this scale, but at a scale that was in the past. And I feel like that's a really important thing that I learned from both my own experiences, but I think it's a real key to being good at um, building companies. You got to learn how to build the foundation and then you add on to it
0: as you go. Of course. So, so then... Basically, you land in GE. I mean, that was the the next stop, no, in your journey. And, and yep. when you were in GE, really the the idea for distributed solar comes about, and you literally developed this within the organization of GE. But then all of a sudden, this ends up becoming a spin-off And, and here you are, you know, now with great people like BlackRock really supporting it. But, you know, that, that probably was not an easy thing. So how did you come across, you know, this idea, this opportunity, and then what was that process of building it under such a big umbrella where there is so much red tape in order to execute. And obviously when you are building something, you need speed, you need to execute very quickly. So how was that for you? I'm sure it was probably frustrating as well.
1: It, you know, it was, it was moments of frustration. Also just moments of like, look, what's the worst that can happen again, going back to the military days. It's like, okay, you know what, if I get fired, I'm confident that I'm going to figure something out. So it, and. I came into GE after my time on Wall Street and uh, joined the renewables business and, and kind of gravitated into the financial decision on whether or not to build a large solar factory or to not build it. Long story short, some of the analysis that I helped contribute to said, do not build it. And the the kind of historical view for GE was, let's be an OEM, let's build solar modules, let's build solar inverters, and let's sell those as products and then do the services on them in solar, that's not the most profitable business model and definitely wasn't a good fit for GE at the time. And so GE decided to exit that because I was somewhat a part of that analysis, I stayed on and it was kind of this gaping hole of what do we do in the solar space? And so I dove deep on residential solar, um, you know, thinking from an end user perspective, a home. I did the analysis on my house and then I dove deep on commercial industrial solar and utility scale solar Thinking from, okay, whether I own solar modules or not, who is using the electricity, whether it's the utility, whether it's a Home Depot, and backed into those models from a customer perspective and built out all these financial models, analysis, um, you know, just put it all together. And it came to me then that it's like, okay, for GE, the best place to play is not residential. It's definitely not utility because we may compete with. G's existing customers. So it's got to be this sweet spot of CNI and no one is doing it. No, you know, there's, there's a couple big companies that are out there that are failing, or there's a, there's regional people out there, but they don't have the national scale. And so then I had to kind of, and, and I'm doing this kind of with a mandate to take a look at it, but also I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't know who my boss was. I wasn't sure what to do. And so instead of, Making a pitch internally to GE to say this is what we should do. I decided to take it a little step further. I actually went and um I like I with with my wife and my, I think I had two kids at the time, maybe just one kid. Drove to Boston during a week and literally went into car dealerships, cold call, just walked in and started pitching them solar at their sites. And I, you know, there was no business, there was no you know no, no, we had nothing. But I just went in as like, hey, my name is Eric Sheeman. I'm from GE Solar. You know, what would you need to think about in order to put solar on your site? And how do you think about electricity? And a couple of them I got kicked out of. Other ones I got good insights. Definitely was uncomfortable, but it started to resonate with me like, okay, this is an underserved market that needs scale, needs something national. So then started to go out and, you know, really amp up what I could do from a sales perspective and uh, really got our first deal, which is like a two megawatt system went back into um, my leadership at the time and said, look, I just sold a system. Now we need a business around it. So I really kind of won the customer forcing GE's hand. Thankfully, I had really supportive leadership and they said, yeah, let's see what we can do here. Let's build it out. Got a couple of engineers, a couple of project managers built that system for profit. And then it kind of snowballed from there. And it was always this balance of what we're doing versus what GE is core. And then what we're doing as far as like, well, could this disrupt the future of GE? And it could. And so I played that kind of inside GE of that internal disruptor of like, you don't know how much it could disrupt your business, but I will help you. I will learn. Like, we'll learn together. I'll show you these deals. We'll we'll sell a couple here. We'll sell a couple there. And And through that process, I think of helping a lot of leaders at GE figure out the future of electricity we kept winning more deals and we kept bringing in now financing and then origination and then development. And then we had a supply chain need. And then, you know, just kind of, I think GE and I at the time both thought that this was just kind of an experiment to disrupt and it became a business. And, you know, I'd have to navigate whether I was part of renewables or eventually I became a part of current and it helped start current, which was this, this, this uh, enterprise within GE that was designed kind of for that end customer commercial industrial with lighting and efficiency and software. And that kind of came and went, and yet we kind of remained. And so we got to a point where we were really gaining market share. I got a chance to pitch uh, one of the CEOs of GE at the time. And I just said, look, I mean, I think it's time where we make a decision as a company to either go all in and own hundred percent of something that, you know, is going to be amazing. Or, you know, or you're going to let it die on the vine and you're going to own 100% of something and you're going to let it die. Or why don't you own like 10 or 15% of something, but really let it grow. It's going to be more valuable to you anyways. And I think the timing was right. I got permission to do that. So then I took the business on a roadshow. Uh, we picked invest, you know, we we had like 20 investors that showed initial interest in helping us spin the company out of GE, um, narrowed it down to six and then narrowed it down to three, and then two, and then eventually went with BlackRock. And then became a, an independent company in 2019, distributed solar development. And then or midway through 2020, um, just realized that you know, it was probably time to to, to, to fully um, buy out the rest of GE's share, which is pretty nominal at the moment anyway. So then in 2020, bought out the rest of GE's minority share in the company.
0: And uh, you know, here we are today. So then for the people that are listening, what is the, what is the business model of distributed solar? So we seek to provide,
1: you know, sustainable energy for um, for our customers, and we tend to do it with on-site generation. So what that what does that mean? Right, it means we go into your facility. We do it at IKEAs, at Home Depots, et cetera, where we'll analyze how you currently buy and use electricity, and we'll propose to you to build a you know large parking structure, covered parking with solar on the top, maybe storage on the side. Um, And we do all that, we charge the end customer nothing for it, Um, and instead, we'll sell them the electricity through what's called a PPA, a power purchase agreement. And so we own the assets long term, I own the solar assets, and I generate a return from selling the electricity from those assets. And so for the end customer, they get an OPEX saving because we sell the energy to them at a lower rate than what their utilities can provide uh, non-renewable energy for. And, uh, and they have no upfront CapEx. And so they get an aesthetically pleasing, a lot of times covered parking lot, rooftop or, or ground mount system, and 20 years of a locked in uh, fixed energy rate in most cases. And so that's a good benefit. And DSD, we own the assets. We get a return from the sale of electricity. Uh, we manage them. And our business has everything from origination, development of the assets, engineering, project management, structured financing, and then asset management across our fleet,
0: which is now across all of America. And in terms of as well, I mean, capital, I mean, you guys probably have uh, required quite a bit of money to, to really execute on this. So how much capital have you guys raised today? So we uh, most of our money
1: that we need comes from um, not at the corporate level, but at the project level, because every one of those projects that we build um, needs some form of structured finance through tax equity. And then debt, right? And then we provide the equity piece of it. So to date, I think we've raised almost 750 million dollars in project level capital. And uh, we don't disclose how much we've actually raised with BlackRock, but it's it's a, it's an order of magnitude to help us grow our SGNA, our budget, and they also, you know, with us are the sponsor equity on all of our deals. So that's where the ownership piece comes in for uh, for all the projects that we build.
0: And today, I mean, anything that you can share in terms of maybe number of employees or anything else to really understand the scope of the operation of distributed solar? Yeah, when we spun off from
1: GE, I think we were at like 50, uh, 50 full-time employees. And I think today we're closer to about 120.
0: Very cool. I know that for you, um, you know, definitely taking care of your employees is like taking care of your soldiers, you know, to a certain degree. So uh, yeah. can you walk us through, you know, how that you know, it's 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 similar in that sense of ultimately just taking care of your people. How do you go about that? No, it's
1: really important. Um, the beauty of the renewable energy space is you have a lot of very motivated—not just financially motivated, but really passionate, great people in the marketplace that want to do better for their families, do better also for the environment. Um, but they require a certain level of things in return for employment, right? And I think. Today's employees are very, very, to me, very similar to my soldiers when I was in the military in that if you arm them with transparent information and the tools they need to get the job done and candor, you treat them with respect, regardless of whether they're very high ranking or whether they're just a very new person in the the uh, in the organization. And then you look after them and you make sure that they know that, like, look. Mistakes are going to happen, and we have each other's backs. The biggest thing we can do is learn from those mistakes. It's the same thing that I tried to do when I was in the military. You lead from the front, but you take good care of everyone that's coming with you. And it's really, it really, I think has, um, it has, spilled over into my business career with our employees at DSD. You know, I have a, I still even have 120 people. You know, we have uh, biweekly meetings where we go over the financials of the company with every employee, so they can see exactly where it is we're at versus where we're trying to be at a goal level they can click on you know our crm and see those stats at any time they want to with all the real-time data in the business so they can make their own informed decisions i'm trying to get you know the 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 best employees are those that can make real-time excellent decisions you know in the moment so you know they can kind of keep projects moving right and i find that you have to trust. And as part of that trust, you have to take good care of them and you have to educate them um, so they understand your business model, your goals, where you're trying to take the business to and how we make money and how we create value. And in return, because the renewables employees as a whole in a market are so top-notch and are so excellent, um, they respond, right? They, they, not every company, I guess, uh, leads like that. And I think there's a lot of people who are dying for that opportunity. It makes them feel a little entrepreneurial. They get to take some ownership of their process, their decisions, whatever, because they have the macro picture. They understand how, what the left and right limit is to make those types of decisions. And I think that's really, really helped us grow the business in a good way.
0: So you were alluding to goals and then also really understanding like where things are heading. So imagine you go to sleep tonight, Eric, and you wake up in a world where the you know, vision of distributed solar is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, it'd it, it help me sleep if we were at that
1: vision, but it's... Um, <laughs> uh, All right. What does it look like? I think it's it's a vision where every major parking lot in the United States that has no other use besides parking cars, and it's just blacktop, is covered with solar, is connected to storage, and that elec- that electricity is going into buildings that no longer need to buy coal power, no longer need to buy natural gas even. And that DSD had something to do with that full transformation and created value along the way, both for our end customers and obviously for ourselves. That would be a pretty pretty remarkable day. And I think we're in the very early innings of what what what, what is a path to get there. I think uh, people are seeing that that is a clearly um, both an opportunity and a good opportunity um, in the next five, 10 years to get just there. And we're
0: seeing a lot of uh, movement in the industry to get there.
1: So I think to me that that's where I'd like to see it.
0: So- Imagine then that, um, and this is a question that I love asking the guests that come on the show, but imagine that I give you the opportunity, Eric, of transporting you in time, back in time, and you're able to, you know, in that time machine, you know, you're able to get a chance to meet the younger Eric, you know, you know, we, we always know that our younger selves never listen, but imagine that that younger Eric actually really, you know, put the ear closer to the older Eric where you had that chance of giving your younger self one piece of business advice before launching a business, what would that be? And why, given what you know now?
1: That's a good question. I I think, um, I think it would be the advice while I always believed in it, I, I could have had a couple more people telling me. And so I would probably tell myself, hang in there. It will all work out. And and just because you have a plan doesn't mean it's the plan that's actually going to be the way it goes. And I always was comfortable with this. And I, like we talked about, you know, you know, managing through uncertainty and all that. But I, I think it, it would have been helpful to go back and have my future self tell my past self, it's going to be okay. Because there are a lot of moments along this career where it felt like whether it was going into the military or whether it was uh, going overseas or coming back or being at Lehman or even going to GE and not knowing if that was the right call where it didn't always feel like the right decision. You know, I look back on it now and I have all this confidence of, Oh, it all worked out. It was totally the right decision. It all fits together. But at the time it didn't feel like that. It felt uncertain. It felt scary. It felt um, anxiety causing. And so I would go back and tell the younger version of me, Hey, there's a plan here and it's all going to work out. And, um, and have faith in it, stay humble, um, work hard, and um, and learn, and nothing bad will happen. That's probably what I would say.
0: I love it. I love it, Eric. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi?
1: Probably through my email. It's, uh, it's, it's eric.scheman at dsdrenewables.com. That's the best way to get directly a hold of me.
0: Fantastic. Well, Eric, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Well, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it.